You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Disaster averted. Disaster averted. The New York Mets did not, I repeat, did not get swept by the Washington Nationals. It was not easy. It was scary. It uh, caused many a stomach ache. But the New York Mets did salvage the finale against the Nationals, winning a wild game at City Field 9-8. to eight. They do lose two out of three to the Washington Nationals. But the Mets are able to stop the bleeding. A four-game losing streak that really came out of nowhere. The last time we were doing a Rico, wrapping up the series against the Giants and wrapping up the overall successful West Coast trip, I think we looked at those two losses in San Francisco and kind of shrugged our shoulders and said, yeah, sucked, but what a great road trip. They started off 7-1. and one. They finished 7-3. and three. The schedule's about to get soft, which I should never talk about, especially after what happened last year. I should never talk about how easy a schedule is because we know how well that worked out last year and the Mets come home and they look lifeless they really did and a lot of times after a long road trip that first game back can be one of those kinds of games the problem was the Mets did it two days in a row and I actually thought the second game of this series they actually looked worse especially defensively than they did in the first game of the series but we'll break down all three games We'll take a look at what happened. We'll look ahead towards the series against Atlanta as the Mets are set to begin what is scheduled to be a four-game series against the Braves, but there's a lot of rain in the forecast. Let's start at the end because, and I said this on the air to Craig. Craig asked me, hey, are you panicking as a Mets fan? And we did receive a few emails after the game two loss saying, hey, we need an emergency Rico. Can you believe this crap? We, we just got shut down by the Nationals. One run in two games. Emergency Rico. I didn't feel emergency. I didn't have that emergency feeling. I didn't. Doesn't mean I was okay with losing these two games, but it's baseball. You're going to have these kinds of stretches. I don't want to tip my hat to Mackenzie Gore and Josiah Gray, but they actually look pretty good. I, I didn't take it as the Mets just getting shut down by crap pitching. What I said to Craig was, I would be concerned if the Mets lost this finale. If the Mets got swept by the Washington Nationals and were now staring at a five-game losing streak going into the Brave series, not that the sky is falling, but yeah, I'd be angry. It would sort of remind me of the way I felt in the midst of that Milwaukee series. I wasn't panicking necessarily, but we weren't feeling great about the way the team was playing. So I thought... And I've said said this before, there are games in a 162 that just feel a little bit more important than others. Not calling it a must-win game. I'm not even necessarily calling it a big game, but a game that just feels more significant than maybe the others. And I thought that 
on this night, Thursday night, the New York Mets played a game that was a little bit more significant than others. They winning this game would have kind of calmed any angst. Calmed it. Doesn't solve it. Calms it. Losing this game could have caused panic, especially if you also root for the New York Rangers because you're already panicking. Your team basically blew a lead against the Devils. You're on the precipice of getting knocked out. If you're a Ranger Met fan, that would cause major, major angst. Huh? I'm sorry. Oh, can I ask you, Evan, wh- why did you have to do that right now? Like, why? This is not the Nets. The Nets didn't just lose and get swept. Like, this has nothing to do with Like, there's nothing relatable. What? Why do that right now? Of course it's relatable. We have, as sports fans, we share teams. You know, obviously there are Ranger Met fans. There's Islander Met fans. There's some Devil Met fans. There are some Knicks Mets fans. There are, you know, we're, we're all mixed up. So I was just saying that if you happen to be a fan of the Rangers and the Mets, you couldn't have lost Thursday night along with getting shut out by the Devils. Like you couldn't have had both of those things happen. So I'm glad that at least the Mets were able to, uh, I'm sorry, I'm such a jackass. You're you're dick. You're a dick. This, this podcast is supposed to take me away from everything else going on in the world. And instead, right. you go, how about right. those Rangers? No, 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 no. You're right. I will not mention the Rangers, the Devils, the Knicks, anybody ever again on this podcast. It's exclusive to the Mets. Uh, the finale of this series featured your boy, Joey Lucchese, taking on Trevor Williams. And I thought Lucchese's performance, see, his final line is going to look average. Five and a third innings, five hits, three runs. I thought he was really good in this game because in the first inning, he had control issues and he put himself into a pretty rough spot. Bases loaded two out for the Stone Garrett. And he was able to make a very pitch and a very good pitch and a lucky pitch because Stone Garrett hit one to the warning track, which I thought had a chance to get out. And he threw a lot of pitches in that first inning. Had a nice, easy second inning. Makes the big mistakes to Alex Call, giving up the home run. Pitches a clean fourth. Pitches a relatively clean fifth. And his pitch count was low enough where Buck sent him out for the sixth inning, which feels important. You know, we've talked about how this rotation doesn't go deep enough. They're minus Adam Adovino, who's on the paternity list. Uh, they're playing one short because Max Scherzer suspended. So I love the fact that Buck said to him, go get the sixth inning. He didn't do it. He gave up a couple of base hits and forced Buck to have to go to the bullpen and Tommy Hunter, and they allowed two of the runners to score. So the inherited runner coming in made the line look a little bit worse, but he did pitch into the sixth inning. He threw 90 pitches, and I think Luke Casey is certainly staking his claim to remaining in this rotation because with Max Scherzer coming back and with Justin Verlander scheduled to come back, there is a little bit of competition. There is a little bit of an audition. And I said this last time, and I think what happened on Thursday only furthers it. The odd man out is likely David Peterson. Assuming Scherzer comes back, well, he will. He's just suspended. But assuming Verlander comes back after his one rehab start, which is scheduled to be on Friday, Joey Lucchese made another strong case to remain in this rotation. And I thought that was a major, major positive. The other positive from this game was the offense. The offense did absolutely nothing for four straight games. It's not a coincidence why they did nothing. Francisco Lindor, Pete Alonso combined over the course of the four-game losing streak, and it actually continued over the first four at-bats on Thursday. 
They were in a combined two for 32 slump. You combine what happened to start Thursday, it extended up to two for 36. This Met offense, and I think a lot of offenses rely on a couple of guys, so I don't think it's that unusual, but this offense relies as much as any other team on their big boys. And when their big boys are doing nothing, and Lindor and Alonzo have done nothing over the course of this four-game losing streak, it's not a great offense. It's an anemic offense. Pete Alonzo specifically looked really, really bad, but he was able to have, I thought, two incredibly important at-bats and probably a third throughout this game. When Alonzo came up in the second inning, and at that point at 0-0, he hit the ball really well on the first pitch. SNY missed it, essentially, because they came back from commercial late. It was a reminder that I love going to games and not having to rely on watching the games on TV. I went to the opener of this series, which I'll get to. I did not go to the final two games of this series. But first pitch, Pete hits the crap out of a ball. And I thought that was a good sign. Like, you know, guys in an 0-for-17 slump, you are looking for some positives. The real good sign, I thought, was that they put together a little rally in the second inning. Jeff McNeil, Vogel back, a couple of base hits. And Mark Canna gives you the productive out, the sacrifice fly, which the Mets did so much of a year ago. Then the two-out rally in the fourth, Brad Beatty hits a home run, his first one since being recalled. Francisco Alvarez gets a base hit in the midst of the rally. Brandon Nimmo gets a base hit. Starling Marte draws a walk. And then Lindor, who's had a few hits over this four-game stretch, a double and a meaningless single, hits that ball on an 0-2 pitch right over first that squeezes in for a two-run double. And at that point, the Mets go up 4-1. to and here's how wrong I was about this game. At 4-1, to one, I had a sigh of relief. I thought to myself, right, we got this. Lucchese's going to give him six solid. The bullpen's going to be fine. And we're looking at like a neat and tidy 5-2 to two win. Like the Met offense in my eyes after the Lindor double, I was thinking to myself, all right, you guys have done enough. You're good. You have been dismissed. And little did I know that that's not how this game would go at all. Because I mentioned the two inherited runners that scored in the sixth that made it close. Then the Mets busted open in the bottom of the sixth. And again, I have that same attitude. Francisco Lindor swinging 3-0 with the RBI double. Pete Alonzo with the infield drawn in, RBI single. Even Daniel Vogelbach with a little blooper for an RBI single. And the Mets have broken it open again at 7-3. So I feel like I'm still right. Okay. This game's over. I feel good. Tommy Hunter even came out back out for the seventh inning and pitches a one, two, three inning. And what I witnessed in the top of the eighth inning made my heart stop about 15 times because the combination of Tommy Hunter and Brooks, Brooks Raleigh hit really, really. It's Brooks Raleigh. <laughs> I, I, that one just uh, finagles me. Uh, finagles me. I don't even know what the hell that means. Brooks Raleigh and Tommy Hunter proceed to hit three freaking guys. And the Victor Robles hit batsman really pissed me off because I don't think it hit him. I, I still don't. I still don't see where that baseball hit him. So maybe maybe Buck should have challenged it, or maybe I'm blind. <laughs> and it did hit him, and I just I didn't pick up on it. And then out of nowhere, and I didn't feel it coming, C.J. Abrams hits a grand slam home run and the Nationals go from being down 7-3, 7-4, to up 8-7. to seven. And my stomach dropped. 
And for about 10 minutes, I thought to myself, is this Met team the team from 2022? Because if it is, they're going to win the game. I saw the Mets blow leads in 2022, and then they would instantly come back and win. That's what I saw a year ago. So as Mason Thompson came into the game, bottom of the eighth inning, six outs away from getting swept by the Nationals, I I had a deep breath, deep breath, because I'm also watching the NFL draft and the hockey game, which I'm not allowed to talk about anymore. But now my focus is squarely on my Metsies, squarely. Can they really lose this effing game? That's what I'm thinking to myself. Could they lose this game? And what are we going to say? Like, we're going to come on the Rico and say, yeah, great, the Met offense, seven runs. But for some reason, Tommy Hunter and Brooks Raley is hitting everybody and C.J. Abrams is hitting a grand slam. And we're going to ignore the seven runs and say, yeah, but they didn't do anything in the eighth. They didn't do anything in the ninth. This team sucks. Let's, uh, let's just all cry. And what was so huge in that bottom of the eighth was that Starling Marte eased it with a leadoff single. Just eased it. Nice little deep breath. Okay. And it's good to see Starling looking like the old Starling Marte. And then he steals second, which was monstrous. Because Lindor has the productive out, hits a ball to center field to move him to third on the sack fly. And then Pete Alonzo, we talked about the big at-bats he had on Thursday. The deep fly ball to center, the RBI single with the drawn infield, and then he smokes an RBI double up the alley to tie the game. And again, as the Mets tie the game, there's a sense of relief of, all right, we got this. I don't know why I felt that way, but I felt we got this. And obviously, Jeff McNeil, who's starting to look like the Jeff McNeil from last year, I think he's got that batting average right around 300 strokes at RBI triple in which Lane Thomas turned the wrong way. Mets can't get the extra run home, which was sort of frustrating because Daniel Vogelback is always looking for a walk and he struck out looking. But David Robertson, who's been that guy all year, a nice, calm one, two, three inning in the ninth. And the Mets win a game that would have been a gut punch if they lost. Let's be honest. Imagine losing this game the way they did a four run lead in the freaking eighth inning. And they came very close to blowing it, but the Mets showed great resilience. Their offense came to play. David Robertson got the big outs when they needed to. That's a much needed win because that would have been a smack in the face if they lost that game. Yeah, I think you uh, explained it pretty perfectly because my emotions were pretty much on point with yours. Um, when Abrams hit that grand slam, I really thought that they were going to come back. I did take a deep breath. I said, actually, I put on Twitter that I um, assumed a major meltdown was going to happen in my house in about 20 minutes because of what was going on with everything else in the world. Um, so I did not expect them to come back. I got I to gotta be honest. No matter how putrid the Nationals' bullpen is, I did not see that coming, um, and I was very concerned. I was concerned of a sweep, dude. That's that, that, Everything that, that you said that Craig was busting chops with and Tierney was busting chops with, I was w- waiting for tomorrow to be like a nightmare scenario to walk but, into work. But, but you know what's weird? the concerns over the last few days, the concerns over the losing streak, if you had was all about the offense. It was all about the fact that they were not scoring runs. That would have not been the thing from this game because they went out and until they scored the two runs in the eighth inning had put up seven runs. It just would have been an unfortunate bullpen meltdown that featured only one base hit, the Abrams grand slam and not one, not two, but three hit batsmen. And then just a bad defensive play by Lindor, who's had a few over the course of this series. So it would have been a different way to lose. It wouldn't have followed the same script of the offense being inept. 
So yeah, I'm yeah. not saying that would have made us feel better, but it would have been very unique from the other games. Now, you know, you, you brought up the Lindor uh, issue uh, with the defense. I don't understand why this series in particular, the crowd looked terrible. It, it, I know the Nationals don't have that sexy, spicy name. To be like, oh, let's go see, let's go see uh, whoever it is. Like, you know, Juan Soto. They have nobody on this team that of name, but there was zero crowd in my opinion. Yep. They looked yep. three games of de- dead ball. The team played flat, and the defense really took a hit after playing flawless yeah. over the first few weeks. Yeah, the defense was awful in this series. They made five errors in three games, which is crazy considering, like you said, Pete, how well this team had been defensively. Lindor made two errors. The error he made in the opener of the series turned out not to matter because they got through it. The error he made in this game, the finale of this series, we are recording this right after the game. So it's a little bit of an instant reaction to the game. We'll obviously get into the other games in the series. But the error he made in the eighth inning was monstrous. Like, if the Mets lost this game, that could have been a play you looked at and said, wow, that changed everything. Because, again, the Nationals' base runners in the eighth inning before Abrams hit the grand slam were one, two, three hit batsmen and a bad error by Lindor, who overall has been fine defensively. So, yeah, I, I don't know how to explain why their defense was bad in this series. There were a lot of different kind of errors. Lindor made two errors. Uh, Escobar had a ball go through his legs. Adovino made a bad throw, I think, on a pickoff attempt. Alonzo dropped the pop-up, which I, I don't know how to explain that. The crowds, I don't know, man. It's April. It's the Nationals. They did very well when the Padres came to town, which was weeknight games. These are weeknight games. I, I guess it's the opponent. But they announced basically the same crowd for all three games, which was 20,000, which is a, a small a crowd as you'll ever see at City Field. And they sort of played it as if they had a West Coast hangover. They did. And, and and that could be real. You know, I said it on the air right before they played the opener of this series that sometimes that first game back after a trip, especially after a long trip, and that was their longest road trip of the year, sometimes you just come out flat. And for two games, it, it, it looked that way. I don't know if that's the reason because it sort of sounds like an excuse and I've got no reason to make an excuse, but they played bad baseball. Like, yeah, that's just that's just what we saw. Their offense was inept for the first two games of this series, and through all three games of this series, they played horrible defense and they walked a lot of guys. It was not good baseball over the course of three games against Washington. That's, that's just what it was, and that's on the heels of playing mostly brilliant baseball out on the West Coast when they went out and won seven out of ten games. So, how the hell do you explain that? Uh, I can't. And, and let's well, I'll blame it on San Francisco. Well, not San Francisco. I'll blame it on ESPN. Because they had to have that ESPN game Sunday. Yes. Night. Buck called them out for it too. Yes. You know it. <laughs> that was my favorite part when Buck called them out. But I'm glad they were able to at least take the finale of this series. Because you're right. Even if the loss would have been very unique from the first two losses of this series, getting swept by the Na- Washington Nationals would be uh, bad, 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 bad. We go back to the opener of this thing. And I was at City Field very excited to be back, to be back at City Field. Uh, before we get to what happened in this game, they did decide to play a Dominic Smith tribute video. It's not a surprise because, and I think I mentioned this on a few Ricos ago, they played a Seth Lugo video tribute. So if you're going to have a video tribute for Seth Lugo, all bets are off. Like, why wouldn't they have a video tribute for Dom Smith? I was not at the finale, but I have a good question. 
did they play a video tribute for Trevor Williams? Like, did he get one too? You have any issue with that Dom getting a tribute video? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Now, I said this on air, too, with Tiki and Tierney, because they were asking the same thing. Like, what the hell is that about? I said, he had his moments. I mean, honestly, one of the more iconic moments of the past few years was Pete Alonso having some sort of walk-off them all celebrating his shirts ripped off and there's Dom Smith on that little like um the the little like I, what was it he, when he broke his, he had something wrong with his knee and he had this like little like uh pedal thing that he was on his knee was up raised up and he was like <laughs> right. wheeling it on on the field but that like I know that's not an iconic moment for him but it that that image is in my head he was there for some moments I'm not going to kill them but I feel like this is a big ritual now in every single sport maybe not football but like even hockey, they had videos for everybody that got traded over the off uh, the trade deadline. Yeah, I think that if you look at what Dom accomplished with the Mets, you'd say, "Come on, there's no tribute video." But he was liked. He was a like Met. Um, he was. He was well liked by fans. I remember when he had that emotional press conference uh, during the 2020 season, the odd 2020 season. I think it was something that Met fans kind of wrapped their arms around. So I never get crazy about this kind of stuff. Because it really doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to get nuts about a tribute video for Dominic Smith. We know what Dominic Smith was. He was a big prospect. And he never panned out. And the Mets gave him opportunities at the end, despite Pete clearly being the first baseman of this team, to be the left-handed DH. And for whatever reason, he had no pop the last couple of years and became so unproductive that he was spending half the year last year in the minor leagues. And I'm glad he's got an opportunity in Washington. But... Watching him over the course of these two games because he didn't play the finale against the lefty, I don't think anything's changed. He has no home runs. He's hitting 235, and he's got a good glove at first base. I'll give him that. He actually made a really important play in the opener of this series. Uh, The Mets, I think it was, I'm trying to remember the exact situation, but he made a really good scoop on a throw to first base, and if he doesn't make that scoop, the Mets tack on a run or score a run. Because remember, they got shut out in this game. So it would have been, at least they would have gotten on the board. So he played good defense in the game. He had a hit, got on base a couple of times. But I don't think anything's changed. I don't think Dom Smith's turning into a star. I don't think this is going to be something that we as Mets fans are going to look back and regret. I don't see that. What we did see in the opener of this series was Jose Budo try his darndest to get through five innings. And I thought Budo in this odd way was impressive because he put a million guys on base. He walked six guys 
in four and two thirds innings. And it felt like the Mets stayed in the game by the skin of their teeth. And it wasn't just Jose Budo. It was Jimmy Yacobonis who cleaned up his mess in the fifth inning. But it felt like the Nationals had a chance considering the amount of guys they left on base. Actually left 12 guys on base throughout the game. And they had left 10 guys on base at the first six innings. The Nationals should have been up like eight nothing. And the Mets somehow, Budo and Yacobonis and Tommy Hunter, kept the game reasonably close. Reasonably close. It was finally broken open in the sixth when Luis Garcia hit that two-run double. The offense, though, was just mowed down. They didn't have a lot of opportunities in this game. The only opportunity they really had was Starling Marte with the bases loaded and two outs in the fifth inning. And I thought that Marte continued to look cooked. And by cooked, I don't mean finished or his career's over. He just looked awful. He struck out twice. He had a bunch of bad at-bats. And every time Marte's that bad, you get concerned about himself. You start to think about his neck. I think Marte looked better as the series went on. So the concerns I had Tuesday night have certainly been alleviated over the last couple of days. But it was a really lifeless baseball game. It was really, really tough to watch. And I was there. That was the game I went to. By the way, they did not fix the scoreboard on any kind of consistent basis. We had mentioned that they don't show what a guy had done during the game, like 0 for 2, 1 for 3. I, I was keeping an eye on this because I, I want to be uh, helpful for my fellow Met fan. I want them to want the Mets to be held accountable. And what I noticed, Pete, is that some of the batters, they would say, they would show what they had done throughout the game. But it was not consistent. So the scoreboard is still uh, its not up to par yet, Pete. Can I ask a, a random question? I don't know if you took note of it, but were they positive? Like, for example, if it was a Met thing where someone was like, you know, two for three with a home run, well, which wasn't, there was no home runs on Monday. So. <laughs> there was nothing. <laughs> so there wasn't much positive. So how about this? Were there like, if a guy went 0 for 2 on the Nationals, would they put would they show that? Like, I'm trying to see if he was like I, a plus minus here. No, I, I don't. I didn't notice any kind of connection. I think it was just they're figuring out this giant scoreboard. That's what I think it is. I, I don't think there was any connection between how the guys were playing or not. Otherwise, they should have just shut the scoreboard off because <laughs> it was bad. I mean, the only positive I remember was not in that fifth inning. Brett Beatty had a double. And I think with Beatty and with Alvarez, who both played this game, and Beatty and Alvarez played two of the three games. I stand by something I said to you a week ago. It is trending in the right direction for Alvarez. He's playing most of the time. He is. Think about it. He started two out of three in this series against Washington, two and two in San Francisco, two out of three against the Dodgers. So if you do the math on the last 10 baseball games, he has started 6 of 10. Now, maybe that's not enough. Maybe you need it to be 8 of 10, but it's absolutely trending in the right direction. But I have noticed a parallel. There is one pitcher, Francisco Alvarez, has not caught yet this season. And that gets us to Tuesday night, because on, on Wednesday night, because on Tuesday night, the opener of this series, they ended up losing 5 nothing. That was the Jose Budo game I just described. Josiah Gray was tremendous. It was curtains. It was curtains. In game two of this series with Kodai Senga on the mound and Mackenzie Gore on the mound for Washington, we saw Tomas Nito back in the lineup catching. 
We have seen Nito play against lefties, so I don't think that's necessarily unusual. But we haven't seen Alvarez catch Senga yet. Keep an eye on that. We'll see if Buck's trying to keep them separate. But in game two of this series, it was really the same crap. Kodai Senga was in trouble. He was walking guys, ended up walking four guys in five innings. So think about that. The two starters in game one, six walks. In game two, four walks. Ten walks from their starting pitching in about nine and two-thirds innings. That's a crap load of walks. But much like Budo, Senga did a really good job of not allowing guys to score. He got in a massive trouble in the sixth inning and somehow was able to limit the damage getting out of it, only allowing those two runs. So Senga did his job in terms of keeping the Mets in the game. The problem is, again, they did not hit. The only run they scored in this game was after Eduardo Escobar let off with a triple. They got a clutch two-out single from Starling Marte. Outside of that, nothing. And they had opportunities. The big one came in the seventh inning. They're down 3-1. to one. They get leadoff walks by Brett Beatty, a leadoff walk by Daniel Vogelbach against Carl Edwards. You got the top of the order up, down by two runs. Nimmo, Marte, Lindor. Nimmo grounds out. Marte strikes out. Lindor strikes out. So they didn't have a lot of opportunities in the first two games of this series. But when they did, they did nothing offensively. And you want to tip your hat to Mackenzie Gore? Mackenzie Gore's a good-looking pitcher. I'll give you that. And I, and I acknowledge that, A, the Nationals have pitched well. I think we have to point that out. I'm not just talking about the first two games against the Mets. Their pitching numbers are actually pretty good. They're better than the Mets, pitching-wise. So sometimes we stereotype a team's bad, got a bad record, so they must suck at everything. Their pitching actually hasn't been that bad. They've had some good numbers and good performances by guys out of their bullpen and obviously some of their starting pitching. With that said, I don't want to tip my hat. I don't want to tip my hat. Hit. If you're the Mets, hit. Manage more than one run in six innings against Gore. Don't strike out 10 times against Mackenzie Gore because Kodai Senga, while he wasn't dominant, kept them in the game. Five innings, two runs. You're in the baseball game, and they couldn't get the big freaking hit. All right, so I'm going to disagree with you on that. The Mets right now are working on all these prospects, all these half prospects between Alvarez, Beatty. You know, can't wait to see what happens with Mauricio and Vientos. The Nationals, the one thing they did well was when they traded – they got back key pieces, Josiah Gray from the Dodgers and Mackenzie Gore from the Padres. Dude, those are aces. They're going to be. Well, they're not aces. Not they're yet. Go- not yet, but, they're, they, but, but they were highly touted prospects. I'm not saying they suck, dude. I, I know that they're good. I can still be frustrated the Mets did nothing I offensively. I, under, I understand it, and I'm not trying to make an excuse because you, you, we could buy into the whole thing about the, the coming back from the West Coast, all that other stuff. But uh, like you said. You got to tip your cap to them a little bit. Well, you you have to give them a little credit. I I give them credit, but in the seventh inning, when they had two on and nobody out, that was against Carl Edwards and Hunter Harvey. Okay, they had a chance to rally down three to one against the Nationals bullpen. And by the way, Hunter Harvey came in and looked like Dennis Eckersley in his prime. I mean, Starling Martin and Francisco Lindor couldn't hit the baseball, and then they got mowed down. So they also got mowed down by the Washington Nationals bullpen. Bottom line Hunter is they Harvey's one not run. that Hunt, uh, listen, I hate to say this, but the the one thing that the Nationals actually have is they do have some decent pitchers. But Pete, I acknowledge that. I mentioned the Nationals have pitched reasonably well. They still scored one goddamn run on four base hits. Like can we that's what they did in the second game of this series. 
one run on four hits. What, is that good enough? You okay with that? No, it's, it's terrible. We're facing Randy Johnson in his prime. It's Hunter Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> it's Carl Edwards Jr. <laughs> it's Carl Edwards who couldn't throw a freaking strike to start the inning. It was, it was very, very frustrating. And then you pile on the fact that that was the game where the Met defense was awful and their defense didn't kill them. It didn't lead to necessarily runs being scored. But when the day was over, the Mets had four hits and three errors. Like, think about that. The Mets were one error short from having the same amount of hits as they had on Wednesday night. It was frustrating, man. It was frustrating. That's that's all. Yeah, you know, you want to see your team score the more than one run in two games against the Washington Nationals. I understand that when you trade Juan Soto, Max Scherzer, or Trey Turner, you're going to get some good young pieces back. And we saw a lot of it this week. C.J. Abrams is one of the pieces they got back. Mackenzie Gore, Josiah Gray from those two trades I'm talking about. Because think about that kind of talent that they traded away. Juan Soto, Trey Turner, Max Scherzer. Scherzer was a free agent to be. Turner was a year removed from it. That's a lot to give up. So they do have some talent, but... The first two games of this series was incredibly frustrating. And I was pissed at Nito. And let me explain why. So Tomas Nito is abysmal offensively. I think we all know that. And I've made the point. He is a pitcher. He's a pitcher hitting. So Tomas Nito comes up with a runner on third and nobody out in the third inning. The Mets are down 2 nothing. Just want to set this up for you. Because I could deal with you being bad I can deal with you being a bad hitter. You're a bad hitter. You try. You're a bad hitter. I can't deal with you being an idiot. That I can't deal with. So Tomas Nito comes up with a runner on third base and nobody out. And on the first pitch, lays down a bunt. Gary Cohen quickly says, uh, safety squeeze, I guess. It's promptly picked up by Gore, throws to first base. Escobar stays at third because Eduardo Escobar is not exactly super fast and was probably really confused. Like, what the hell just happened? Why is Tomas Nito bunting? So I'll ask that out loud. Why are you bunting? Like, Tomas, all you have to do is hit the ball to shortstop. If you do that, a run's going to score. In the worst case scenario, you strike out. Ah, it sucks. There's still only one out. Pop up. Ah, it sucks. There's still only one out. Why are you laying down a bunt? Like, I love when Tomas Nito bunts, but not in the situation of there being a runner on third and nobody out. Okay, bad enough. Let's go to the fifth inning. In the fifth inning, the score is the same. It's two to one. Eduardo Escobar leads off by hitting a ground ball to shortstop that C.J. Abrams will not feel successfully. The Mets have a runner on first and nobody out. Tomas Nito's up. They are down two to one. Bunt, Tomas. Tomas, you want to bunt here? This is a great spot to bunt because if you get it down, the tying runs on second and the top of the order is coming up. Please bunt, Tomas. And instead, even thinking about bunting, he's swinging, he's fouling balls off. And now I'm at the point where I'm just praying he doesn't ground into a double play. I'm actually rooting for him to strike out because if he strikes out, there's still a runner on first one out. And what does he do? He strikes out. So thank God he didn't bounce into a double play. But someone's got to explain to me why Tomas Nito thinks bunting down 2 nothing with a runner on third, nobody out makes sense, but not bunting with a runner on first, nobody out down by one run makes sense. 
None of it makes sense. So if you're going to play and hit 095, can you at least not be brain dead in terms of when you're laying down bunts? That whole sequence really annoyed me. I got to tell you. Is that on him, though? Is I know this is stupid because, you know, we know how terrible of a hitter he is. And I think the whole team knows and, the, and all the management. But at some point in time, the the, the management, whether it's Buck, yeah. whether it's third base coach, someone's telling him to bunt, not to okay. bunt. So, so let me answer that because it's a good point. Is it on him? The bunt with a runner on third, nobody out, is absolutely on him because that wasn't called by the dugout. There's no way Buck Showalter is calling for a bunt with a runner on third and nobody out. So that's on him. In the fifth inning, yeah, Buck didn't call for a bunt. And I've had some issues with Buck not calling for bunts. But if Tomas Nito's got the ability to bunt on his freaking own like he did in this third inning, then bunt on your own in the fifth inning when it makes more sense. So in the case of this, I'm exonerating Buck Showalter because I disagree. Like I would, I'd bunt more with Nito. I would. Just not in the situation where there's a runner on third and nobody out. I, I would treat him like the pitcher. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. But with a runner on third and nobody out, I wouldn't treat the, I have my pitcher hitting. Like there isn't a, there isn't a reward in laying down a bunt there, especially with a slower runner on third base. It just, it didn't make any sense. And I'm losing my patience with Tomas Nito because I get it. He's a really good pitch framer. He's good defensively. He handles a staff. Well, Pete, you can't hit 105. Like, you have to have, at least Alvarez has a little pop, is showing you some signs of life offensively. Like, you cannot hit 107 and play every day. You really can't be a pitcher, and that's the way he is. All right, so first of all, you talk about, you know, you, you complimented him on his pitch framing. I'm sorry, but I think uh, DeMeo threw out something that Alvarez's pitch framing has been rather good so far. I'm not knocking Alvarez. I'm talking, though, though. Let me just make something clear when I compliment his pitch framing. I'm just talking about Tomas Nito. I'm not comparing him to Alvarez in terms of that. I'm merely saying, like, I know he's good at other things, but his offense can't be this freaking bad. That's my but, only point about it. But, 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 the, but the point is, is though, is that you're you made a point that he's been catching Senga. And Senga hasn't looked all that freaking hot. No offense. Okay? So at some point in time, in the fifth inning, if you're drawing zero uh, oomph from your lineup, it's time for a pinch hitter. Okay? I'm sorry. 
right? So you're saying you would have just pinch hit for him? Oh my god! <laughs> In the fifth inning, <laughs> bring up Eduardo Escobar, bring up somebody, whatever, and then guess what? Senga, did he even pitch the sixth inning? No, he didn't, right? So the problem with doing that would have been the only option you would have had was using Alvarez because Gore was still on the mound, so he had three lefties on the bench. So yeah, I mean, you could just use your Alvarez button right then and there, but. I think what you're also thinking is you're going to wait. Because remember, a few innings later in that seventh inning, when they rallied against Carl Edwards, that's when Buck emptied his bench. He pinch hit Escobar with Beatty. He pinch hit Nito with Vogelback. And both guys got on base, and it worked. So you only have a few chips to use. You only have a few bullets to use. That's why you got to be careful if you're going to use it that early. Runner on first, nobody out in the fifth inning. I'd rather have just Tomas Nito bunt than using one of my big bats. But one other thing from this game, Tommy Pham is just Tommy Pham. Okay, that's that's what he is. He was 0 for 3 against Gore. He struck out three times. He is hitting about 215. He is what he is. I think Buck needs to have an alteration against lefties, and I'll tell you exactly what it is. Brett Beatty plays third base. Eduardo Escobar DHs. That's it. That's it. Because no matter who the lefty is, we saw it against Mackenzie Gore. We saw it in San Francisco. We're probably going to see it against Atlanta. He's not playing Brett Beatty against left-handed pitching. And while I understand you may want to protect him, let's look at your other options. Tommy Pham is basically going to play against lefties. And my question would be, why? I don't think he has to. So instead of just DHing Fam or having Fam play the outfield, but basically his bat is being added to the lineup against lefties, keep Beatty in and DH Escobar. That's what I would do. That's my first alteration against lefties because the Mets have been on this incredible stretch. The New York Mets, you ready for this? This is I think this is fascinating. You tell me. They have played how many series now? If you count it out, the opener against the Marlins, uh, the series in Milwaukee, the series at home against Miami, the series at home against San Diego, and then on the road trip, it was Oakland, L.A., San Francisco, and now Washington. They have played eight series this season. They have faced a left-handed starter in every single series. Every one of them. And that streak will continue over the weekend against the Braves because the first guy they're going to face is Max Free right out the gate. So the Mets are facing a lot of left-handed starting pitching. And that's not going away. I think even the Detroit series coming up, they're going to face a lefty. So this streak will expand to 10 consecutive series where they face a lefty starter. They're facing a lot of lefties. I have seen enough. Eduardo Escobar DHs. Brett Beatty plays third base. Boom. Boom. I think Beatty had a tremendous finale to this series. He had a three-hit game. He got on base four times. Granted, it was all against righties, but play him against lefties. That'd be my advice to Buck. Play him against lefties. But it's crazy, man. They they face so many freaking left-handed pitching. So much of it. And in this Atlanta series, I I don't know how many games they're going to play against the Braves because the weather looks so bad over the weekend, but they are scheduled to play a four-game series against Atlanta. Max Fried's going to pitch the opener. Then they face three right-handers. So the streak continues on with the Mets facing an absurd amount of left-handed pitching. Absurd. Does that mean they're going to call up Mark Vientos? Probably not.
<laughs> that's that's probably not happening anytime soon. But they have played the entire week minus a guy on the roster because of the Max Scherzer suspension. Though what they did with Edwin Uset that feels kind of dirty. Uh, so here's the deal. When a guy is sent down, you can't recall them uh, for 10 days unless they replace a guy who's placed on the injured list. So when the Mets were looking for a starter for the Tuesday night game, Jose Budo always made the most sense. I, I said it on the last Rico. I don't think he's been down in the minors enough. He needs to replace somebody who goes on the injured list. So all of a sudden, Edwin Yuseta, who had pitched the Saturday game against the Giants out of the bullpen and pitched pretty well, comes down with an ankle injury. Come on. Is that really what happened? Is it possible that Jeremy Hefner went up to Edwin and said, hey, Edwin, how you feeling? And Edwin said, I'm great. And Jeremy said, but how's your ankle? And Edwin said, my ankle's fine. And then Jeremy kicks his ankle <laughs> and says, is it still fine? Oh, no, it's actually hurt. Okay, you're going on the IL. Because how the hell else were they going to get Jose Budo on this roster? And then I hear, oh, but don't worry. Edwin, you said it's going to come off the IL when he's first eligible. No kidding. He's probably not hurt. <laughs> of course he's coming off the IL when he's first eligible. Yeah, he's fine. No big deal. I'm I'm sick of all these random injuries that that happen. I'm sick. I'm sick of the call ups and the call downs. I know that they have to do this constantly, but it's so poorly done. And, and I got to be honest. I know Tommy Hunter. He had a good inning, and then they put him out too long, and it, it just was bad. But I'm kind of over the Tommy Hunter stuff. Like I feel like the Mets are too good. They don't need that good old vet to come out of the bullpen here and there. You you have better arms in the minors. You do. Well, I, I, I'm glad Denny Reyes is back because I thought Denny Reyes, who actually came up when Adam Adovino went on the paternity list, he didn't pitch in the finale of this series. I thought he looked pretty good when he was up here. Uh, Tommy Hunter's just going to remain around because Buck likes him and he's an innings eater. And you are going to need guys, you know, especially go back to the opener of the series against Washington when they were losing 5 nothing or 4 nothing. You just need guys to come in and get outs because you can't use your high leverage guys all the time. You got to keep them relatively fresh. But Jimmy Yacobonis, Tommy Hunter, guys like that. I think Jeb Brigham has been so impressive despite giving up a run the other night that he's here to stay. I think he's one of those guys in the bullpen that's going to stick around for a while, in my opinion. But this is going to be interesting, this four-game series against Atlanta. Number one, how many games they're going to play. Like I mentioned, the weather forecast looks really bad. And this is going to be a good test. Because if you look at the pitching matchups going into this series, the Mets are at a disadvantage in every single game but the finale. Here's the way it lines up. Max Fried is going to pitch the opener against David Peterson. Could be Peterson's last start in the Met rotation for a while, assuming everybody's healthy. Tyler McGill against Spencer Strider. The Mets did a pretty good job against Strider last year. But Spencer Strider's coming off a performance, I think, where he struck out 13 guys. So advantage number two. Jose Budo on Sunday afternoon against Charlie Morton. And then finally, if Scherzer makes his first start in which he's eligible to, it would be Monday against Bryce Elder. So I'd argue the Braves have the pitching edge in every one of these games until the finale of this series. They're going to play Friday. The weather looks fine. Saturday and Sunday look horrific. So what I wonder about is if they rain both those games out, I assume they would just go play a doubleheader on Monday. Now, the Braves only come in one other time. 
That's part of the new scheduling now. Division rivals only come in one time, uh, twice. They don't come in three times anymore. There are some common off days they could finagle, but there is a chance if they have to rain out two games this weekend, they'd be forced to play a doubleheader on Monday before the Mets head to Detroit to take on the Tigers because the weather forecast for Saturday and Sunday look awful. And again, it is a wraparound series. So even though it starts on Friday, there is a game Monday, four games against Atlanta. And the Mets go into this showdown with the Braves actually only two games back because the Braves blew a lead on Thursday afternoon. They were actually up 4 nothing in the ninth inning and absolutely collapsed. A.J. Minter has been really struggling. So the Mets go into this series two games back. Assuming they play four games for the sake of this podcast, just so we don't get too confused about it, I would take a split. Knowing the pitching matchups, knowing the way the Braves are playing, I think I would be okay two and two against Atlanta. You agree with that, Pete? I I kind of have to because it's the Braves and it's better than losing. But I mean, I the pitching matchup is what makes me say two and two is great. I I I kind of hate it right now. The, the 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 pitchers, the starting pitchers are not very good. Between Peterson Budo, it just it's not very. It's not ideal. No. It's not ideal. I mean. Think about it this way, Pete. The guys starting against Atlanta in three of the four games are all depth guys. They were all guys that were not supposed to be in the rotation at the beginning of the season. Meanwhile, I'd argue Max Fried and Spencer Strider are their two best starting pitchers. So, yeah, it starting pitching-wise, you don't feel great about it necessarily. And despite breaking out offensively on Thursday against Washington – I don't think any of us think they're going to put up a crooked number against Max Freed and Spencer Strider specifically on Friday and Saturday. So, yeah, I would absolutely take a split as well. And then to, now um, Verlander has – is tomorrow the rehab or today was? His rehab start is on Friday, and then he would come back and pitch Wednesday against the Tigers. That's the plan. Got it. So, so. if all goes well with Verlander – he would then make his first start back against Detroit. That's why with Scherzer coming back and Verlander potentially coming back, there were two guys that get eliminated from this rotation. They could keep a guy in another turnaround just to give everybody extra rest, which I would not be stunned by. So I guess David Peterson may not necessarily be pitching for his Met Met life for now because he could come back and make another start next week. That's absolutely on the table. Let's get to a couple of your emails, thericob at gmail.com. Larry Cordero writes, uh, Evan, Pete, love the podcast. I think the Mets have to get Marte out of the two-hole. He's been awful. A little bit better the last few days, but I understand. Here's his new lineup. He'd go Nimmo 1, Lindor 2, McNeil 3, Alonzo 4, Beatty 5, Marte 6, the DH 7, Alvarez 8, Mark Canna 9. So there's a couple of things I actually like about this. I think Jeff McNeil could hit anywhere. Let's start with that. I think McNeil is such a good hitter that if you needed him to lead off, great. If you want him to bat second, great. You want to have him at third, fantastic. You want to have him protect Alonzo, which I really like, super. So I think McNeil's easy. You could put him anywhere you want. I'm not sure they're ready to put Beatty in that spot up to five. I think he's got to hit a little bit more before you protect Alonzo with Beatty. But I'll tell you what Larry did that I do like. I've always been partial to the guy batting ninth being an on-base guy. 
because I want that guy getting on base ahead of my top of the order. So while Mark is not off to the greatest start in the world, Mark Hanna will give you long at-bats. Mark Hanna can draw a walk. I don't think Mark Hanna batting ninth is the worst idea in the world. And I think once Alvarez starts to hit on some kind of consistent basis, I wouldn't have him hitting ninth. So the idea of Mark Hanna batting ninth is not the worst thing in the world. I'm not totally against it. So I, I, give, no, you, I give you no, credit that's, for that one. That, uh, listen, I, I got to be honest, and I know this is Little League, so it's different, but I do that all the time too. Like I want to – I you can't make a lineup top-heavy, even in the majors. You just can't do it. Like – if it like like said, Nito, you try to have to hide that at bat, but that that bat, but like if he's ninth and then you go into Nimmo, it does it doesn't help the cause at all. And if he does get on base, Nimmo's speed screwed because Nito's not that fast. So you need to have somebody to kind of build into that back end. So I, I I actually love that. But McNeil three, he said, yeah, I don't know if I like that. I've, I McNeil. think McNeil fits anywhere. I, I mean, honestly, like Jeff McNeil's such a good hitter. You can stick him wherever you want. You don't think, though, like he's either really good right behind Nemo or after an Alonzo type of deal? Like, I actually like it. it if Pete Alonzo can't drive a run in, I'm actually not opposed to McNeil being able to do it. He's oh, no, no. I, I think right now, because they have been so uneven in finding a guy to protect Alonzo, McNeil's the best option. Like right now, I actually like the consistent one through five that Buck's thrown out there. Buck has been very consistent about that, that when guys are healthy, it is Nimmo, it is Marte, Lindor, Alonzo. It's really one through four that's consistent. And then a lot of times against a righty, we'd see McNeil batting fifth. A couple of emails about the sweeper. The sweeper's pissing a lot of people off. Michael Shire writes, what are your thoughts on this magical new pitch that was just invented out of thin air? Are we saying every pitching... Every pitcher that throws 50% of it learned and mastered a new pitch in one offseason, or is this just the soup du jour? I personally hate it, and it feels like the flavor of the month. Please advise. Adam Menson, same thing. What the hell? When did the media guy get the memo to start calling it a sweeper, and why wasn't baseball fans publicly copied about it? So apparently the sweeper has been around for a long time. It's a variation on the slider that has more horizontal movement. Like, there's variations to the slider. There's the slurve. There's varies. I guess it's just that this is the first time it's been called something. And so that's why we're hearing it all the time. But the pitch itself has been around for a long time. So, But, but it's in our lexicon only because now it's up on MLB scoreboards. It's in GameCast. Like, they're just telling you, this is the kind of slider it is. It's a sweeper. So it is strange to hear that term out of nowhere. But no, it's not a new pitch that everybody just invented in the last five minutes. We've heard a lot of it. In fact, there was a funny story earlier this season. Uh, I'm trying to remember the pitcher. I think it was the, uh, a reliever on the San Diego Padres who throws the sweeper. Where the scoreboard that he was pitching at didn't know it was a sweeper and somehow decided to call it a slutter. And so the scoreboard kept putting up that he was throwing a slutter, which I have, I got to tell you, bro, I've never heard of the slutter. I didn't know what it was. And so everybody got a little, little laugh out of it. They all thought it was funny. I, I've heard of a few slutters in my day. <laughs> Look at you. <laughs> Look at you. So a couple of Rico scheduling notes. 
because they're playing a four-game series against the Atlanta Braves, and I kind of like adding that second podcast in the midst of a four-game series, we will try at some point to kind of split up the Braves series with a podcast probably Saturday night, uh, early Sunday morning. We'll have it posted late Saturday night, whenever, assuming they get the games in. And even if they don't, maybe good time to talk about what the plans would be if there are rainouts. And then I think we'll do a Rico after the series ends, which is Monday. So normally we give you the Sunday night series is over podcast. Just to give you a heads up, I don't think it makes a lot of sense this time around because of the oddness of this series. It's a four-game series. So look for a new Rico late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, and then again Monday night into Tuesday morning. I just think that makes the most sense with the series that's coming up against the Atlanta Braves. But keep an eye on the fact that the weather looks very, very bad. We may not get four games against the Braves, and that's not the worst thing in the world. If they get a few rainouts, I am not against it, considering the pitching situation. And then they head to Detroit to take on the Tigers. So all in all, the Mets have at least stopped the bleeding by winning the finale of this three-game series against the Washington Nationals. You can email the pod, thericob at gmail.com, thericob at gmail.com, and you can check out Hoff on the Fan with Tiki and Tierney, me with Craig, 2 o'clock. Appreciate you listening and downloading Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>